How are we doing, Revolution? Okay, now look. Understand something. I love you guys and Jesus so much, I left clubhouse tickets at a Reds game, even though they were losing, to come and be with you. So you can do better than that. How are you doing, Revolution? Awesome. Awesome. On that note, though, I was talking to Eli Wallace last week. Every time he's gone to a Reds game lately, they've lost. Every time I've gone to lost, Eli, we're not going to any more Reds games ever. All right? Even if we get World Series tickets, we are staying home. All right? Oh, exactly. When you lose to the last rows, right? All right. We are in the Gospel of Mark, so if you want to jump to page 599... Justin's next door in the nursery, so I'll be doing the announcements, but you can go ahead and start turning there if you're in the Blue Bibles, 599. Otherwise, Mark chapter 1, we'll be doing 1, 14 through 20 tonight. A few announcements. The first is this. Uh, Wednesday night, if you've got some time Wednesday night, uh, around 5 o'clock, we'll be doing some sorting for free market. Uh, John Simpson and uh, and, and, and August Thompson... Get it out there in a minute. Our organize August, sorry, Thompson, are organizing it. It'll get out there sooner or later. Autumn, Tom- yes, that. So, I promise at the Reds game I only had Diet Coke to drink, really, seriously. So, anyway, um, we'll, we'll be organizing that, but John will be here this Wednesday, right, at 5 o'clock. So, 5 o'clock Wednesday here. Um, one of the things that we do here is free market where we take our extra stuff and we give it away to those in need. In order to do that, we really need to sort it, right, by gender, size, all that kind of stuff, so that when people come in here on Saturday, November 3rd, right, Saturday, November 3rd, that they'll be able to easily go and get what they need. So we need some help sorting that stuff. So you can be here Wednesday night at 5 o'clock to help sort through that stuff. That would be very much appreciated. That is one. Two, uh, the Father's Table is a ministry uh, done by some wonderful people that basically felt called to help feed uh, the poor here in Portsmouth. So Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, uh, they take their own money and they cook up a meal for more than 100 people. And they serve that lunch on Monday, Wednesday, dinner on Friday. Um, They need help in serving, all right? One of the things Revolution does is we just help serve. So we come in there and we help serve the food. We also hope to get to know the people and just develop relationships with them, friendships with them. So if you can help this Friday uh, from 4.30 to 6.30, it's at the Salvation Army. Show up, tell them who you are, sign in. Um, Tom Bennington and Kara Bennington, they have really taken that um, and but they will not be here this Friday, is that right, Tom? But but if you have any questions, can they talk to you, Tom, after service? So Tom, just wave your hand there. You can talk to Tom there about helping out on Fridays from 4:30 to 6:30. That would help a great deal. All right. So if there are no other announcements, let's pray, and then we'll continue working through Mark, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, that you, we have the uh, ability and freedom to come together and, and worship you and learn about you. We ask that your spirit would be here tonight, that it would pierce everyone's heart here. That if I should say anything that dishonors you, that it will fall on deaf ears. But if I say anything true about you, that it will bury deep within their heart, mind, and soul and help them to become better disciples for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, let me also say before we begin, I appreciate those of you who have been praying for my family, uh, my my mother um, was rushed to the hospital this week, as if those of you who have been on Facebook with me um, know. She blacked out, 
and because she has a, a heart condition, she, that caused her to black out. She fell, she hit her head, um, and you know, she's 72 years old, and she had to have seven staples in the back of her head. Uh, the gas she took was really nasty. She also had a concussion um, from that. She is home, uh, but I mean, when I talked to her this morning, she said she felt like somebody had teed off and just absolutely whacked her in the head. I mean, she's just going to have a nasty headache for a while and she's never really been sick a day in her life. So just pray for her as she deals with this. Yeah, I would appreciate it. And those of you who have been praying, those of you who've been taking care of her, my brother-in-law works at SOMC, Chris Bill works at the SOMC, Justin Clark, they've been taking care of her. I appreciate that very much. All right. Last week, you know, or last two weeks, we've been looking at the gospel of Mark. We saw that. You know, John the Baptist emerges. He begins to call people away from the temple system out to him because you have a lot of people who have absolutely convinced that the religion of the day is not feeding them. It is not challenging them. It is not helping them. It is not doing anything for them. They have become desperate. Yes, they're oppressed by a foreign government, but they also are absolutely desperate. They hear about this guy out there preaching. They go to see him. He starts this new movement, but he says that this movement is not about him. Some Someone else is coming. And then last week we saw Jesus emerges. He is baptized. We saw that among the reasons Jesus is baptized, Jesus is not baptized for sin. Jesus is without sin. Jesus is baptized among the reasons. There are many reasons why Jesus is baptized, but one of the reasons Jesus is baptized is that it is a crowning. It is a public, public proclamation of his kingship. We saw that with the voice from heaven. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And we talked about the kind of king that Jesus is. Now Jesus goes into the wilderness. He is tempted. He overcomes the temptation. And then he emerges out and he begins to preach. And he begins to call disciples. And that's what we're looking at tonight. So look at Mark 1, 14 through 20 as he begins his ministry. Verse 14. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news or the gospel. Now, that good news we have already seen, right? Good news was always associated in the first century with kingship. It was always had to do with a king. When, when the Roman heralds would go into the town square and they would proclaim, hear, hear, hear us, hear us, we have good news, it always had to do with the king. This good news also has to do with the king. It is about the king. It is about a king who will save his people from their sins. It is about a king who takes the place of of their people. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus Christ is that he goes in our place. On the cross, he takes the punishment for the sins of those who have faith in him. He lives a perfect life to grant that perfect life to people like us who have lived an imperfect life and who one day will stand before God and if we are judged by our own lives, we fail, but if we are judged by Jesus' life, we are granted eternity with him and the Father because of that. That is the good news. Verse 15, <clears throat> the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Okay, now, the kingdom of God, this is what he's talking about, the kingdom of God. When he says the kingdom of God is near, he means this in several different ways. One, it's near in the fact that, who's the king? Jesus, Jesus is the king. And he's standing there. So when he says the kingdom is near, in one sense, he means it's right here because the kingdom is always defined by the king. It is always the sphere around 
the king. But it also means a new age is breaking in, an age of kingdom where sin is being defeated, where people are coming to be reconciled with God, where creation that has fallen since Adam and Eve is slowly being put back into the right. It is being fixed. It is slowly being made right. And many of you may be saying, yeah, where do I see that? We'll talk about that as we work through Mark. We'll talk about that as we work through Mark. And when he says repent, what he means by that is turn your loyalty. Turn your loyalty from other gods to the one true God. Turn your loyalty from other kingdoms to the one true kingdom. And we talked about last week what that means because the simple fact is everyone has a king. Everyone has a God. Every atheist has a God. It's usually themselves that they worship. We talked about that last week, how hard that is to get out from worshiping ourselves because if nothing else, we're always with ourselves, right? We always see ourselves as the center of everything. And because we fight that constantly, we constantly see ourselves as our own gods. And we think that anything that brings us pleasure is a good thing, right? But it actually is ultimately destructive, ultimately destructive. We saw that last week. Only pledging loyalty to King Jesus is redemptive. Only that truly brings peace and joy and hope. Most importantly, hope. Yourself as King and God will never, ever, ever work. And we see these gods everywhere. I've said this before. If you're new to revolution, you know, if you're, you're old to revolution, you've heard this several times before, just nod like you've never heard it before. Everyone has a God, and gods are everywhere. All you have to do is if you go into Kroger's, and in front of Starbucks, there is the magazine rack. And if you go down the magazine rack, you will see God after God after God. You will see hell and heaven defined there, right? You will see that some people define their hell as being ugly and pudgy, and their heaven as being thin and hot, and their Savior is whatever diet pill or PX, whatever it is, or whatever will get me from there to there is my Savior. Right? You see that. You see some people believe, you know, there are some people out there, you walk through the magazine racks that think that, you know, their hell is not bagging a deer. Seriously. And their heaven is getting this huge deer, and you'll see these magazines. And so the way to get it is they read these magazines and they believe their Savior is if I get this kind of rifle and hunt this kind of way. Right? That's the way it is. Everybody has a defined hell. Everybody has a defined heaven. And everybody has a defined Savior to get them from one to the other. But only Jesus Christ will not absolutely destroy you in the end. Verse 16, one day... As Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. And Jesus called out to them and said, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish <clears throat> Excuse me, for people. And look at what they do. He says, And they left their nets at once and followed him. There's no indication they even pulled their nets into the boat. Right? They just walk away from what would today be tens of thousands of dollars of equipment, and they just leave. Why? We'll talk about that 
Verse 19, a little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons James and John in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. They leave their dad on the boat, and they just take off. Why? What is going on here? Why did they leave? Why? Part of this deals with the way that disciples were chosen in the ancient world. Of why they just suddenly left. Part of this deals with what people thought were important in the ancient world. And more importantly, what happens when you think something is important and it disappoints you. And you have to totally redefine what you're following. Let's talk about that. Let's pray first, and then we'll talk about it. Heavenly Father, thank you for leading us through these six verses in Mark. Now we ask that you'll be with us as we try to apply it to our own lives, grow closer to you, serve you better. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what's going on here? Here's what's going on. If you're a kid in Israel, right, Uh, The first thing that you do when you're five years old, you don't go off to kindergarten. You go off to Hebrew school, and you learn in Hebrew the first five books of the Bible. You memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You memorize Leviticus in Hebrew. You memorize numbers. You memorize Deuteronomy. And this is what you do. For the first couple years of your life. After a few years, they take the brightest kids and they then take them on to the next level. Now, the kids who don't make it to the next level, many of them just go on and start to learn their father's trade. They could be about 10 or 11, 12 years old, somewhere around there. They go off, your father's a carpenter, your father is a whatever. You go off and you learn your father's trade. But if you are very good at having memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you can answer questions about them, and they would quiz you about them, and you're good at that, then you move on, and then you, then you memorize the rest of the Old Testament in Hebrew. You memorize everything from Genesis to Malachi in Hebrew. And then by the time, somewhere between 13 and 16, you would, if you get through all of that, you go to a rabbi that you want to apprentice under. You go to a teacher, and so a professor, if you will, a preacher. And you go and you say, you know, I would like to sit at your feet. And the rabbi would then start to ask you questions. And he would begin to ask you questions, mind-numbing questions. I get blank looks when I ask Christians what the gospel is. Rabbis would ask their students, how many times is the Lord's name repeated in Deuteronomy? And they would have to tell them. And then sometimes even the rabbis would go, good, now tell me every verse starting from the end of Deuteronomy, and work backwards. They would do those kind of things. And if you were good enough, then the rabbi would say, good, follow me. And they would come, and they would come in behind the rabbi, and they would live with the rabbi, and they would serve the rabbi. 24-7, they would be with the rabbi, they would follow him around, and the rabbi would usually have no more than, anybody want to take a guess how many? 
Twelve, yes. Students who would follow him around. They would go everywhere with him. They would see how he slept. They would see how he prayed. They would see how he did everything. And they would copy that. And they would ask him questions. Master, rabbi, teacher, what did you mean by this? What did you mean by that? And he would answer them. And at some point after age 30, he would say, you now go and teach. And they would become rabbis on their own. And this is how the system worked. Now, today we worship people with very little, despite us being one of the most educated nations in the history of the world. Anybody can get a higher education today, almost anyone, right? And yet, what do we worship? Despite the fact that we will spend tens of thousands of dollars, maybe even more than six figures, in getting college education to get a job, who do we worship? Athletes? Actors? Especially athletes or actors who, after their career is over, can get reality shows. Right? That's who we worship. We worship pretty people with problems. Do we not? Right? Is there any other reason to watch the Kardashians? Right? When was the last time you watched Keeping Up with the Kardashians and go, wow, what an existential point she's making? <laughs> I have never thought of that before. No one has ever watched Keeping Up with the Kardashians and been intellectually challenged. Ever. <laughs> ever. Right? We worship these people. And some of these people are just born pretty. And they starve themselves. And they make bad life choices and end up with a reality show. Some of these people are simply born with good hand-eye coordination and enough discipline or drive that they become athletes. It's the athletes are the same way. How many athletes... How many times have you heard an athlete interviewed where you went, wow, mind-boggling? It's always the same interview, right? Just trying to help the team. <laughs> Just how they're trying to help the team. Right? They don't say anything else. Right? So that's what we value. But in first century Israel, a person who was pretty with problems, a person who had great athletic skill, was considered worthless. What you wanted was a rabbi who could tell you how to live. What you wanted was a really smart person. You wanted somebody with wisdom. You wanted somebody with life experience. You wanted somebody who would help you live. And so rabbis were exalted to the point where, and you will see this in the Gospels, where you could walk up to somebody and they could own a horse or a donkey and these were incredibly expensive and very rare and only, usually only wealthy people own something like that. And you could walk up and go, I'm taking this. And you've never seen this person before. You go, I'm taking this because a rabbi needs it. And you'd go, okay, a rabbi needs it. Sweet. <coughs> you'd do whatever you could for a rabbi. You'd bend over backwards for a rabbi. Everybody wanted to be a rabbi. Right? Today, God help us, most young men, if you're listening to my podcast, I'm putting that in quotes, men 
think that being a man is living out a flow rider song. No, that's a boy who happens to be over 21. Right? It's silly. But in that day and age, everybody wanted to be a rabbi. It's very difficult for us to comprehend a society where every kid wants to be a rabbi. Everybody wants to be that exalted. Everybody wants to be that wise. Everybody wants to be that learned. What are the disciples doing? Are they... Rabbis? They're fishermen. Which means what? They weren't chosen. Either they were not asked to go on and memorize the rest of the Old Testament like the smart kids were, or they had done that and they could not find a rabbi to take them on. I have this theory that Jesus went through the schooling Went all the way through Malachi and just walked away. And they're, hey, I'm going to choose a rabbi. And he's like, <laughs> I got better access than that. <laughs> but they, Peter, Andrew, James, John, they wanted to be rabbis. Every Israelite male wanted to be a rabbi, and they'd been passed over. And there they are in their 30s, probably. And the guy who everyone is talking about walks up to them and says, the words that every rabbi says to a student they deem worthy, follow me. And if a rabbi says, follow you, and that's been your life's dream for more than 20 years, what do you do? You drop your nets and you go right that instant. Right? That's what you do. When I was a kid, right, from like age 5 to about age 11, I wanted to be a Major League Baseball player. The only problem was that I discovered in minor league and little league and so forth this, I had no talent, which is a bit of a problem, right? But if I'd been 11 years old and some guy came along and said, hey, I'm going to give you all the talent you need to be the greatest baseball player of all time if you come with me right now. I'm gone. Right? I don't care what in the middle of it. I'm, I'm gone. That's what's going on here. And so the disciples just go. The disciples leave their poor dad in the boat. Their disciples drop tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, and they just go. And they follow. That's what they do. And I think we have this picture of the disciples as something they were not as they followed Jesus Christ. I think we see them as like uber spiritual and all this other kind of stuff. I think we see them like this. I ran across this quote this week. This is a quote from a Zimbabwe pastor. He rattled this off. This is pretty... This is... You know, pretty remarkable that he rattled this off. He goes, I am a disciple of the Messiah, 
I will not look up, look back, or slow down. My past is redeemed. My future is secure. I am done with low living, small planning, smooth knees, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, or rewarded. My face is set. My goal is sure. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few. My God is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, delayed, or deluded. I will not flinch in the face of adversity. Not negotiate the table of the enemy or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of the Messiah. I must go until he comes. Speak of all I know of him and work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own by the grace of God, he will have no problem recognizing me because my colors are clear. One, I wish I could preach that way. Right? Even if you didn't understand me, I'd dig it. And two, I want to feel that way. Right? Don't you want to feel that way? Don't you want to feel like I have no need for prosperity? I have no need for feeling first. I have none of this. I don't need it. All I need to do is serve God until he comes back. Think about what that would be like. What are people going to take away from you? If you lose your job, lose your family, lose your house, you've got God. And that's your passion, so what do you care? Right? Isn't that where you want to be as a Christian? Of course. Are you there as a Christian? I know you. Probably not. I'm not there. Most of my life is not, I don't need preeminence. Most of my life is, how can I get to the top? And how can I deal with the disappointment when I don't? That's my life. Most of my life is, I'm not so sure of this. I am, most of my life is not, I am so sure of this that I'm just going to go. I'm going to go to China, I'm going to go to Iran, I'm going to go to the middle of Tehran, and I'm going to start preaching the gospel because I know God is on my side and I fear no man. I ain't going to Tehran. And if I did, I'd probably wuss out. Right? I've met people who have planted churches, underground churches in Iran. I'm not them. I wish I was, but I'm not. But here's what you need to know, a couple things. One, the disciples weren't either. They most certainly were not either. As we work through the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark has the fewest teachings of Jesus and the most action of Jesus. It's not like Matthew or Luke or John where there's lots of teaching. But here's what you do if you read through Matthew, Luke, and John. Here's what you find out really quick. The disciples continuously embarrass themselves. Over and over again, they embarrass themselves. Over and over again, they get things wrong. Over and over again, they totally misinterpret Jesus. Over and over again, they blow it. And even though Jesus tells them several times in very plain language, I am going to go to Jerusalem, I am going to be handed over, I am going to be killed, I am going to raise, rise again, they're like, nah, he doesn't mean it. He's got to be saying something we're not, you know, it's like Bob Dylan lyrics. We have to interpret them. Again and again, he tells them, no, dummies. I mean, I'm going to Jerusalem. Not some spiritual Jerusalem. That place 30 miles away. And they're not going to lock me up spiritually. They're literally going to lock me up. And they're not going to kill my soul. They're going to kill everything. And they're like, no, can't be. Can't be. 
And then when it happens, what do they do? Do they... When he goes to Jerusalem, when the soldiers show up to arrest him, do the disciples go, Oh, he said this like a dozen times. Now I get it. Okay. All right. You're going to be locked up. You're going to die. You're going to rise again. All right. What do you want us to do? No. They run. They take off. They abandon him. Peter is the only one. Peter's like hanging back. Like, you know, Peter's kind of got this thing going back and forth. It's like, well, maybe at the last minute, like he'll start shooting thunderbolts out of his fingers or something, and then he'll take them all down. I got to be there for that. So he's like hanging back, and he's like watching and watching, and people are coming up to him and say, hey, didn't you used to hang out with him? I don't know what he's talking about. And he moves along. He says, hey, no, 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 you, you, you were with him. All right, look, dude, you got somebody, somebody else. And move on. And, and Jesus even told him, you will do that three times. And then a rooster will crow. And it's not until the rooster crows that all those words finally add up. And he's like, oh, oh, yeah, he meant it. Right? They blow it again and again. I blow it again and again. I, the disciples came to Jesus Christ for different reasons. Some disciples came to Jesus Christ simply because, simply because, as little kids, they wanted to be rabbis, and this guy's saying, come with me. Even though he's not going to give them ropes, he's not going to put them up in the temple, he, they still get to call themselves rabbis. We're going, Right? It's like playing some in softball league and go, no, I'm in the major leagues. And they go. Some may go simply because they're revolutionaries. Guy they call the zealot, right? You know what that meant? It meant he liked to kill Romans. And he's like, this guy can throw demons out. He can kick some butt. I'm going with him. He will lead the revolution. Others may have followed him simply because they'd never seen anybody actually heal somebody. They'd seen somebody, they'd seen people act like they'd healed them. You can still see that on TV. But this guy actually did it. They came to Jesus for different reasons. They failed Jesus again and again. And it was not until literally the Holy Spirit comes down like fire and invades them that they go, Ah, now! I get it. Now I'll go. And even then they argue. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is in Acts. In Acts, Peter's on top of a roof. And God comes down to talk to him. And says, Peter, I've got good news for you. Now even those of you who when I explain the gospel as good news a minute ago didn't get it, you will get this good news. God comes down and goes, Peter, you will finally be able to have bacon. And Peter goes, no, I won't do that. He thinks it's some kind of test. And he's like, I'm not going down that way again. And God's like, no, what I have called clean, you can eat. I'm telling you, pork chops are now on the menu. And Peter's like, no. And God goes, Peter, you idiot. 
Wait till you taste bacon. <laughs> Is there anything better than bacon, by the way? Right? Everything tastes better with bacon. I love bacon so much. <laughs> I, I travel a lot. I stay at hotels with free breakfasts, which usually just means dry cereal, bad donuts, but occasionally they have bacon. And it, I don't even care that it's microwaved bacon. It's bacon. It counts. And they have huge trays of bacon. And I try to maintain my self-respect when I essentially take the entire tray and dump it onto my plates. <laughs> I don't know how many pigs I've killed this summer. <laughs> the disciples continue even after the Holy Spirit invades them with fire, even after they see Jesus resurrected and rise in the air. Even if you thought somehow he pulled off his death, you're sitting there watching him fly like Superman. And the Bible says in Matthew, you can look it up, that some still went, some doubted. It's the first century you're watching a guy fly and some still doubted. These were not brainiacs, folks. These were not hyper-spiritual. These were not the spiritual kids. They doubted. They, they, they struggled. They screwed up. And almost all of them, to be sure, had come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. I came to Jesus in 1997 when I was not quite 25 years old. And I came to Jesus out of desperation because a doctor had told a 25-year-old that he had cancer. I thought I was going to die. And so I begged God for my life back. And then after the surgery, the doctor said, you're going to be fine. And at this point, even though, as I have tried to tell you guys, I don't know if you believe me or not, I did not like church. I did not like Christians. I did, I hated Christian music with a passion. And I had no desire to ever watch a Kirk Cameron movie in my life. <laughs> Which irony upon ironies, I'm going to be at a conference in November, I have to be at, for my work for three days, and the guest speaker is Kirk Cameron. Because God has a sense of humor. <laughs> I did not want to do this. I did not. I still don't like the fact that the job I've chosen, one, has no money, two, has no prestige, three, is totally heartbreaking, and four, leads you into more doubts than you will ever know. And I started that journey simply because out of a cheap exchange. Look, I'll do whatever you want, God, if you just don't kill me. I'm a big fan of breathing. And that's how I started. And it was, it's been an up and down ride ever since. I still struggle so 
much. My job, I don't get any money from this. The job I get paid for is to deal with Christians. And the one group I don't like are Christians. I just, I can't listen to Caleb, man. I'm not convinced Obama's a Muslim. I just, just don't care. I just don't like Christians. And I struggle with that so much. I struggle with the anger. And then comes the, 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 the doubt. And then comes the, 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 the desperation of, 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 gosh, where are you? Give me something here. I know that you're there. And again and again, I meet with people who say, I just can't bring myself to believe. I want to believe. And I cannot believe. I'm struggling with, is the Bible really true? I'm struggling with, is God really there? I'm struggling with, did Jesus really die for me? I'm struggling with this. And they feel like they're not Christians because they struggle with this. Well, if you're not a Christian because you struggle with that, if you're not a Christian because you have that doubt, then neither am I. Being a Christian is not having it all together. Being a Christian is not having everything answered. Being a Christian is not just absolutely believing with 100% of everything you have. The disciples didn't. And they were directly chosen by Jesus himself. That's not what it's about. So what do you do if you have these struggles? What do you do if you have these doubts? What do you do when depression comes and loneliness comes and desperation comes? I mean, many of us reach out for things we know are unhealthy because we're so desperate to feel something. We're so desperate. Even though we know it's going to leave us empty. What do we do? This is not Dr. Phil. I don't have a nice little bumper sticker slogan to give you. That's just going to seem to make a sense of everything. Right? Which, by the way, if Dr. Phil could make sense of everything with his ratings, we would be the healthiest nation on the face of the planet. Right? How, how's that going? I just left traffic in Cincinnati. I don't see a lot of health there. <laughs> Here's what you do. And this is not an easy answer, but this is, I think, what the Bible presents. You fight through it. You just have to fight through it. You just absolutely have to push through it to the other side. You have to keep going and keep going and you have to keep studying and praying and worshiping. Even if that praying is, God, where are you? There are entire, if you study the book of the Psalms, there are 150 books of the Psalms and a number of the Psalms again and again are, God, where are you? I don't feel you. I don't see you. I need you. And if that means you go to those Psalms and you pray those over and over again, then that's what you do. And you keep fighting. Don't wuss out. When I see a person going from here to there and grabbing this answer, this answer, I'm going here and I'm doing this, I'm trying this. 
That's a person who has no discipline. That's a person who, frankly, needs a spinal infusion. You've just got to fight through it. You're going to have dark days. I just finished. I'm a geek. And I just finished a book about D-Day, World War II, about the spies who helped D-Day happen. One of them was tortured by the Nazis for day after day after day. If he had given in and given up, 100,000 Allied soldiers would have been killed. I'm not sure we have that kind of stomach today because we just run from one place to the other when what we need to do is stand up and fight through it. You want the reason why many of us are here is because our grandparents and our parents got up and went to work when they didn't want to. They did what they didn't want to do for you. I mean, all the theological differences and all the differences I've had with my family, the reason I went running to my mother's side this week is because again and again and again, she would bend over backwards for me, not because there was anything in it for her, but because she knew it was the right thing to do as a mother. She got up, she fought through it. There's a reason why we look at people who sacrifice and who bust their butt for other people and say, that's our hero, because we know intuitively that is right. And that's what we have to do as well. You've got to fight through it. If you're in recovery and you're trying to get through it, you're going to have dark days. You've got to fight through it. If you are a Christian and you're struggling with doubt, you have to fight through it. If you feel spiritually dry, you have to fight through it till you don't feel dry anymore. It's that simple. Just don't give up. You can't quit. You'll bounce around from here to there and you'll never find an answer. You'll never find it. This is the only answer. And the only way to get from A to Z is to fight through it. Only those who truly doubt can truly believe. Augustine said that. You fight through those doubts. That's what I do. That's what I have to do. That's what I pray you do as well. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that you love us so much even though even though we so often give up and give in to temptation to try to make ourselves feel better, to try to make ourselves feel more fulfilled, to try to make ourselves feel more important. I just hope and pray that everyone here We'll see how important you are, how loving you are, how true you are. And that when those moments of doubt come, when those, when those moments of depression come, that they won't just give up, that they won't just run, that they won't just give in, that they will fight through it, that they will show the kind of fortitude, they will show the kind of guts of the people that we that we admire, that you've put out there so we can admire. We, we know that they're, we know that your own son sat in a garden and said, is there any other way to make this happen? And when you said no, he just fought through the pain and he fought through the fear and he fought through the isolation for us. May we do the same and know that we're going to face that. 
pray this in Jesus' name as we stand up to worship you now. Amen.